rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Welcome, friends, to this episode. And before I say another episode of Rumors of Grace or XYZ podcast, I'm going to say that it's both. I'm accompanied to me, uh, with me on my right is my daughter, Lauren. How are you, Lauren? I'm good. Welcome back from New York City. Uh, we are recording this from Franklin, Tennessee, and uh, we felt like this discussion today was so important that we wanted this to be a joint podcast. For those of you who listen to Rumors of Grace, you may not know, but uh, there's a podcast called the XYZ Podcast, where Lauren and I talk to people of different generations. And we talk about things that we have in common and, and realize in those conversations we have more in common than we have differences. So today, with that segue, we've got uh, Lauren to my right, and in front of me I have Dr. Brandy Kellett, who you may remember, she was on Rumors of Grace podcast a few months ago. And here's two women, different generations, both brought up in the South, who are both uh, dealing and having conversations. Um, and in this case, Dr. Kellett, who's having backyard conversations, we're going to learn more about that, about race and how to be anti-racist and talking about um, white supremacy and all the things that the world is talking about now. And Lauren, you're fresh back from two years in, in New York City. I know that's opened your eyes and, your, and the way that you see the world, and you met a lot of different people. Uh, so before I begin and we jump right into the conversation, we have a lot to talk about today. I want to give a quick bio for those of you who did not listen to my prior interview with Dr. Kellett. After completing her undergraduate work in English and Latin, she went on and she got her MA and her PhD in Caribbean and American Literature and Postcolonial Studies in 2010 from the University of Miami, which is my old home, so we have that in common. We both landed in Nashville. Uh, she writes and speaks regularly about identity, traumatic history, social justice, spirituality, and race in and around Nashville. Dr. Kellett, on I will call you Brandy moving forward. Sounds Welcome good. again. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Lauren, glad you're here. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. So let's start with where did you I the reason I invited you back was I was talking to your husband and he he was saying that you guys were having these backyard combos, backyard conversations in Nashville. Talk to me about that. Where did that come from? You know, in May, when um, around the Memorial Day holiday, uh, and I was with family, um, sort of huddled up grieving the loss of a child from a year ago, and so I was really detached from the news, but we started to sense this trickling in effect um, of an, an awakening across the country after the death of George Floyd, um, Ahmaud Aubrey's um, horrendous death, um, Breonna Taylor's death. And it felt like the nation was reeling from three back-to-back, -back, very public, very clearly unjust, racially motivated murders. Um, and I was stunned to see so many white friends begin to grapple with uh, what it means to be white in America, what it means to be black in America, what it means to be patriotic. 
what it means to be responsible for what's said and done around you. Um, and I started to, like many black friends, because I've spent a lot of time and energy in this kind of work, I started to just be inundated with phone calls, texts, Instagram, direct messages, um, emails, asking, what's happening? Do we live in a really racist country? Like, is there a problem with police brutality? Uh, people who, in my past experience, had been really defensive about mentioning race or having any sort of interaction around uh, acknowledging systemic racism felt really curious about that for the first time to me. And as I began to write about that and think about that and share about that, I um, and as I began to listen to Black leaders across the country and Black friends locally, uh, I started to hear this refrain of, hey, you white folks need to get together and talk about your whiteness. You need to talk about your history with race. You need to talk about why it is that you love white supremacy so much without ever acknowledging it. And you need to talk about what your commitment to your own comfort does to bodies that look like mine. Um, and so I decided to host a series of backyard conversations that were COVID friendly with temperature checks and masks. And we all sat outside um, and really try to curate a space for white people to grapple with their whiteness and to grapple with how, how, uh, what role we have to play in the um, unfair uh, disadvantages that our friends of color face every day. Um, and so that's sort of how it was born. So the first week we decided to try to tackle our history of white supremacy, what white culture is, what it looks like, why being colorblind doesn't work, <laughs> uh, the roots of the Confederacy and the lost cause mythology, um, how a person grapples with their privilege, that sort of thing. And then the second week, we talked more about what it means to become anti-racist and how that's different than not being racist. Um, we talked about white fragility and how that can really block our empathy and keep us from embodying solidarity and standing with others, what we're signing up for when we decide to lean into these conversations. Um, and then our third week, which was canceled initially for weather and now is postponed indefinitely because of Nashville moving back into phase two with COVID, um, is about raising anti-racist kids and, mm. and some philosophies of parenting around those issues, in addition to how to have really hard conversations with people who disagree with you. Yeah, you, you said something a few seconds ago that I thought was important because, you know, it's not lost on anybody that um, we are three um, very privileged upper middle class people sitting here having a conversation about this. But I thought it was um, something clicked in me when we were talking before we hit record that you said, you know, you've talked to your black friends and what they're saying is, and the people that you deal with on a regular basis, and you've had these conversations, what we keep hearing is, we need to get our act together. Because <laughs> they've been saying this for 150 years. You know, it's not new. You can go back and listen to Martin Luther King. You can go back and listen to all of these people who have been saying the same thing, and it hasn't changed to some degree. And now all of a sudden there is an awareness. And so we've got to get our act together. And so th that's why I thought it was important, uh, just to be clear that, um, you know, we are people from the South. We come from conservative backgrounds. You know, we are not coming with um, any other baggage other than our own white uh, privilege and supremacy. I can speak for myself. I know that's something that I'm 
really trying to root out and trying to be aware as much as I can. Um, but I think it's important to go into this today. And Lauren, did you have anything specific that you want to add to that before we jump in as to kind of your background and why it's important for you to be in on this conversation? Yeah, no, um, just the acknowledgement that we're three white people sitting in a room talking about how to solve <laughs> white like supremacy is, is a little... It sounds really bad, but I think it's also important that we don't also feel that all of my black friends and everyone that I've seen has also been like, it's not my job to educate you. It's out there for you to get educated. It's online. There's books to read. There's people to talk to. Like, It's been too long for you to come to me and say, is there police brutality? Is there white supremacy? Like, It's that in and of itself is a privilege that you don't have to know about it or deal with it. So, and, and, and this conversation can only go so far, um, yeah. but we need to go that far. Yeah. So having said that, um, I would like to, to start with the format, if it's okay with you, that you have in your backyard conversations, which week one was looking back, understanding our history, white privilege and white cultures of silence. Let's talk about that. Can, I don't even know where to start. Can you... I, I, your PhD is in um, post-colonial studies. It's in you know Caribbean studies. I'm sure you've got a lot of great info around that. Yeah, I would say um, two things. One, a quick word about the structure of the way we sort of organize the the backyard conversation. So um, I had a resource table every evening that had, um, and I and I created documents that I gave to people who were interested in reading lists and a suggested order sort of of entering this conversation. If you're brand new to it, then these are the things I would suggest you read first. And Lauren, to your point, um, there there is both there's a twofold need here that we stop talking as white people and listen to or put ourselves under the leadership of folks of color mm -hmm. who have been doing this work for generations mm -hmm. and who know much more effectively how to confront racism, um, how to observe yourself and your biases, mm -hmm. and how to reform systems that oppress people, right? Like, they're the experts. Mm -hmm. And so in a very real way, I need to stop talking and move to the side and sit under someone else. Um, at the same time, we also need anyone who's willing to speak up to confront our history um, of, of white supremacy and of white silence. And so um, I know what I can do, and I hope that we can start there. And But if this is the only step we take, then we've just continued to center our whiteness and our comfort level, which is the part of the problem, yeah. right? Um, and so in terms of the structure of the event, we would um, have people come in. People brought their own chairs and their own blankets and had to wear masks. And um, they sort of spread, spread throughout our backyard. And I dragged a TV outside with my PowerPoint on it and um, began to share. And so I would sort of speak for 30 or 40 minutes and then um, offer people a couple of, of questions uh, by way of response that they could gather in smaller groups, either with people that they had already been sort of quarantining with or they could ask, you know, and, and mask themselves to speak with people they didn't know. Um, and so we gave people five to 10 minutes to sort of process quickly and think about what resonated and think about what they would like to challenge. Um, and then we came back together and I led us all in a, in a deep breathing exercise, um, partially because I think it's really helpful and partially because I wanted to model 
that part of the work of centering whiteness is that we react often without understanding where our thoughts are at, where our emotions are at, where our, the tension in our bodies, and we can take that out on other people. And so we wanted to try to model through actually pausing and taking up time to help people breathe and get in touch with their thoughts and their emotions and their bodies. I've learned through sitting at other people's feet that when we understand how our sort of whole selves are interconnected and interrelated and how they influence us and the way that we interact, we're more able to take responsibility for ourselves and for what we do to other people. Mm. And so before we asked, before we allowed anyone else to share openly with the group, we tried to ground ourselves and get in touch with where we're coming from. Um, and then we opened up to uh, some just open comments, questions, discussion uh, time and things like that. And then we sort of ended with a call to action and kept it to a pretty tight hour and a half. Um, so yeah, the first week, we, um, I felt like it was really important for us to understand our history as, a, as an educator. And I mostly deal with English, but as a parent even of kids in metro schools, um, I've looked at the Tennessee state standards, and they're incredibly biased. Our, our standards of history are, have a lot of gaps. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. What, what do you feel like is being left out or what are some important things that you are finding or like why is this not in here this is crazy that we're not educating all of these people that this happened or this didn't happen or mm -hmm. like what are some big points that you feel like are being left out I think that part of um I think part of how we got where we are now is by deciding how we define the words patriotism <laughs> and how we allow our comfort level to dictate what's allowed to be talked about around us, right? One of the tenets of my culture and exploring my own white culture is that we keep people comfortable. It's considered bad manners to yeah. make someone uncomfortable, mm -hmm. right? And so... Keep your mouth shut. Keep your mouth shut. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of why we don't talk about things that make people uncomfortable. Um, it's considered bad manners, right, to mm -hmm. mention something, even if it's true, if it will make the dinner party tense, right? Yeah. And so um, we're just regular people. If you don't explore your biases, then you end up explicitly hurting people. And the same is true of the people who wrote the Tennessee state standards, right? Um, slavery is, is a blip in our standards. Um, the racialized society that we created on purpose to subjugate and, and sort of disenfranchise and dehumanize folks of color and native peoples is a blip. I mean, I've been on countless field trips with my children throughout Nashville, um, even where the Trail of Tears is sort of glossed over because our, you know, beloved president decided to adopt a native child. And so, see, he was really a good guy, yeah. even though he, you know, slaughtered and displaced uh, thousands of people. And so the, we have a really fraught relationship with history, and I think it's wrapped up in our notions of patriotism. Um, my understanding, even now, the danger in speaking out against white supremacy or about our conflicted past or our deep hypocrisy that exists in our country is that it's considered unpatriotic to do so. Um, and I think that's because we love heroes and we love simplicity and we love binaries and we love to be the good guys. Um, and so we love to tell these stories of, of Americans being courageous and brave, but we 
and idealistic, um, but we're really uncomfortable saying the same leaders were incredibly courageous and idealistic and deeply hypocritical and abusive to other people, right? Or that the same people were so committed to sacrificing for their community and were incredibly greedy and individualistic at the same time. I I think it makes us better to acknowledge all of that history. I was watching uh, Hamilton, not to bring in another thing, (laughs) but I love the way they portrayed him because um, here you have a man who was very... um, uh, he was great. He was. I had a lot of great ideals, but also very misogynistic and um, hot-headed, and you know all of that. And I think, I think, like you said, do you feel someone who has studied history and knows a lot about it? Um, is is it we we look fondly at history, and you know you hear all different sides saying we can't erase history, we can't change history, but sometimes does history need to be? Is it needs to be expanded and have another voice? How is history passed down to us? Meaning, it seems to be the people that are in charge and in control and who want to look the best pass the history down. Is that accurate or? Absolutely. I mean, we, you know, in general, our, uh, you know, white culture and white supremacy in America has privileged uh, the published word over the the spoken word, right? We've published, uh, or we prioritize educ- education and educational degrees and sort of pedigree over our lived experience. And so all of those things combine together um, to really preserve the narratives of winning, um, and the victors get to tell the story, and we essentially erase the narratives that disagree with that. Yeah, I just, I, I, I find it hard to sp- when people are like, you're erasing history, when in reality we have erased so much history and yeah. like you're, you're not even understanding what that actually things meant. Or I, I have a lot of friends because my school is very international, are not from America. Mm-hmm. And my boyfriend's not from America. And speaking to them, they, their understanding of their own countries and like America is so much broader. And it's a strange thing that I've only found with Americans that if we say anything negative about the country, you're unpatriotic. Right. Or we can't acknowledge the bad history as well. Mm-hmm. And I don't understand why that is. I think it might be our idea of patriotism that if you say anything bad about America, then you hate America and you need to leave. Mm-hmm. Which to me feels like if you actually cared about America, you would want to acknowledge the things that were bad and change them. So how do you, do you have a lot of people that push back that way at your talks and how do you confront that and deal with that? Yeah, it's, you know, it's really problematic. And I, and I think part of it is it's easy to make this about a national conversation, but I, I try to keep everything at my own kitchen table and in the mirror, you know, Mm -hmm. and looking at myself. Um, most of us also love to tell stories about when we won yeah. <laughs> and we're less excited yeah. about telling stories about when we really mess something up or really hurt someone's feelings or really did damage to another person's body. Um, and so I understand the instinct to preserve our stories of ascension and sort of celebrate the good and ignore the bad. Um, it's a lot easier to do that when anyone wounded doesn't get to speak, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like when the victims don't get a don't get the microphone, it's a lot easier to tell the story in one way. Mm -hmm. It's simpler, it's more efficient, it's cleaner. I get that. You know, it's better for the 4th of July celebrations. Um, But my personal sort of entry point into this conversation is that 
I'm, I am severely limiting my kids' ability to function in the world if I don't tell them all the stories of our failure. Yeah. Right? Like, I'm, I am on purpose planning to give them a complex. <laughs> you know, I am intentionally sort of good point. wounding them before they even get their start if they think the only story in my family's past is ascension, winning, being, you know, kind and good. Uh, always doing the right thing. Always doing the right thing. And the truth is, for most of us, my friend Patty always says, we're all mixed bags. Like, we are all the worst and the best, you know? Mm-hmm. And why can't, we, why can't we have a new version of patriotism or of sort of humaning where we talk about both sides, you know? And yeah. talk about what we learned and talk about um, how we got better. And I don't think we can, we can begin to invite people into this conversation until we address some of those wrongs. Even the idea in our current moment, we had the, the deaths of these folks piled on top of, you know, burgeoning protests all over the country. And as long as we allow these binaries to exist, that protesters are bad manners, they're rocking the boat, and they're unpatriotic, you know, mm-hmm. the trifecta of death, um, then so many people can point their finger and go, that's bad. And so part of my work is to help people go, oh, except for that America loves protest. And that's yeah. how we started. And even the stories we now love to tell, like about the Underground Railroad, they were breaking the law every time anyone helped. Destroying with the underground. personal property of tea that didn't belong to them. Yes. <laughs> and then, you know, with chattel slavery, like when you're stealing, you're stealing a body into freedom you're stealing property, you're breaking the law to, to mm-hmm. help people. So even, even some of our own heroes don't make sense with the protesters are bad sort of ideology. Right. And, and to be clear, and I hate to even bring this up, nobody that I have come in contact with, and I know that they're out there, and I'm sure no one that you've come in contact with, is for violence and destruction of, of pri- pro- private property. That's very few and far between. We can talk about the statue issue as, as we go forward. Um, so did people get hung up on that? And they're like, this is all about destroying, tearing down communism, starting over, you know, all of disgracing history. Do you get a lot of that, that kind of pushback too? Yeah, it was really interesting. Between the first week and the second week, I, I'd really tried to dial in during the conversation piece. And so because I'm a learner too, you know, I don't want to just be the teacher. I want to learn also. And so I began the second week by saying, these are some of the things you taught me last week. And, and one of the things that I learned by hearing people's comments the first week was, it's so tempting to jump to extremes and it's never helpful. Yeah, you know, and it's never honest either. So to to characterize any, you know, all all white people as being supremacist and evil or to characterize all protesters as noble servants or as like violent looters, you know, neither neither one of those ideas is helpful. And so to sort of just in general full stop avoid the extremes in your language. Um I think that's helpful. Um I also think that the 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 sort of red herring, I guess, of like, yeah, but they're looting or they're violent. Um, it falls into an old, old trope of, again, of white comfort. Like, I can only get behind you if I'm comfortable with all your methods and every single one of your doctrines and all your ideal ideologies. Um, and 
and I, I came, came to term those in the last month as in this teaching time as entrance fees. Mm. That's the way I talk about them. So be aware of the entrance fees you ask other people to pay to get you to listen to them, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Or to support their movement. Like, I'm, I'm interested in, and I now believe you that police brutality exists, but Black Lives Matter is, you know, has some fraught issues. And so my entrance fee becomes, I can't support you because I can't 1,000% get behind all of Black Lives Matter and every person who's ever hashtagged that, right? Or my entrance fee is, I would march, and I do believe that in, in the public sphere and in, you know, protest as a good thing and that it's patriotic, um, but, you know, that one guy, that one night threw a torch on some building. And so I can't, my entrance fee is that as long, until you can verify that every single person will be on their very best behavior all the time, <laughs> then I can't even listen to you talk about your angst. But in, in, isn't that in and of itself, and I hate to even say it, but it's kind of like if you behave yourself and act like you should, then we can have a conversation. Isn't that in and of itself kind of like talking down to people who are in trauma, who are fighting for their rights, who are saying, my relatives and my bloodline are being murdered. But if you behave yourself and act right and be good, then we can have a conversation. But if you get angry and you destroy something and you pitch a fit, then we're not going to have a conversation. It isn't, to me, that's what it, it, it screams of. Again, no one is saying it's okay to destroy personal property, but when you have a child who's acting out, you, don't, you would not be a good parent if you just said, I'm going to deal with the anger and the violence, but you don't deal with the source of it, and mm-hmm. you don't deal with what's really going on. All you would do is create a, a little somebody who acts good and is fearful of, uh, of, of not acting good, right? Well, I mean, right. They would have to abdicate their their right to agency or humanity or sort of, you know, getting to live out their own choices. Like they would have to sacrifice all of that in order to acquiesce to like, you're right, I'll just, I'll kill my desire so that I can behave in a way that makes me acceptable to you. Mm. Um, Yeah, I would, I would say a, a few things. One is that there is a long history of white people of the, of this, the movement of equity um, the pace that, that this movement uh, functions through is the pace of white comfort, mm. right? So when white folks feel threatened, we have to slow down the movement, right? And King's letter from the Birmingham jail sort of made this really famous by saying all of these white ministers were saying, we support your, the end that you seek, but we can't support your methods, right? Or you're trying to move too fast. And he said, like, how dare you try to determine the pace for another man's freedom, you know? And so there's a, there's a long history of white folks saying, I'm with you, but I can't support that. The entrance fee is too high for me, so I'm out, right? Or um, I want to support you, but only if you do it my way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that's deeply problematic. It's also, I think you're exactly right, Bob, um, there is a there's an undercurrent here, and Lauren, you were getting at this too, that um, the, around the monument movement, I think thinking about if, if you want to remove these monuments, then you're trying to erase all of history. Or if you want to, 
affirm our rights, you're trying to damage all these rights in the process, right? And mm -hmm. so the they're resetting the binary that we're talking around, and it doesn't. It's illogical. It doesn't even make sense. Yeah, and my my I have two points, but my biggest thing on that is. Um, there's no reason we can't have museums that have these things. There are museums that has these things. If on an extremist level, if like a Nazi flag, we don't in Germany, they don't fly it. But you can go to plenty of museums that honor what happened in this history and acknowledge that that was there. Mm -hmm. But they don't. It's not that it's it's out in the open and it's something that even if you're saying, well, I'm not celebrating it. I'm just honoring it. That's a celebration by having it in the middle of your town. Mm -hmm. And. To me, that's deeply upsetting and concerning that we would just even allow something that was a blip on our history's timeline to become the Confederacy was was not what we romanticize it as. Mm -mm. Well, I don't romanticize it, but like what people romanticize it as. And so it's a misinformation in education that this was some big, deep Southern pride. But in reality, it was something that happened for a short period of years that most people that were that were like against the country we would call them like we would call them terrorists right. and so it, it's crazy to me but also back to the protesting and the I went to many protests in New York and I've had so many conversations since I've been back with a lot of people that are older than me mostly being like was it as crazy there as it was like what was that was everything broken and I was like <laughs> Honestly, 99% of the time, like, I never saw anyone do anything violent at a protest I was at. None mm -hmm. of the protesters were ever violent, ever rude. If anything, it was police yelling horrible things at protesters. And I walked through midtown Manhattan on Brooklyn, and very rarely did I see huge, like, destruction of buildings. Mm -hmm. And, like, there were only a few things that happened that happened way at night when things got crazy with people that were violent but you have to understand why people are being violent mm -hmm. and empathize with that and to me it feels it's hard to explain to someone why that is a cop-out to say well they're being violent so therefore we're just going to dismiss it to me that just screams I don't want to acknowledge this so I'm trying to find a reason to like pull all the sticks out so it falls mm -hmm. and so I don't how do you deal with that like how do you have those conversations and be like this is why that argument is false and mm -hmm. why you should get behind this mm -hmm. you know it depends I so I've with my own with some family members who will remain unnamed um there have been their whole their entire characterization of the last two months of sort of public uh comment and and protest and being in the streets and changing the way we talk in the public sphere around race and history and policing. Um, they characterize all of it as these violent looters mm -hmm. who are destroying, you know, someone's hard earned business for their whole lives. And so in that instance, um, and it's harder with family, I think it's easier to sort of flare up and get angry, yeah. you know, when you're speaking with a family member. Um, but I've, I've tried to say, um, to contextualize that violence in the greater millions of people who have protested peacefully, mm -hmm. right? That like to to contextualize it appropriately, that this is not the lead story. This is a tiny fraction of what's actually going on. Yeah. A. B, the presence of a of an emotional or violent outburst um, does not 
take away or erase the the harm and the hurt that's been done. If right? anything, it shows exactly how harmful and hurtful it's been. Right. I mean, you King know? said riot is the language of the unheard, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the idea that we are, um, that desperation actually has an outlet, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that there's only so much far any human, there's only so much weight any human can bear, um, I, th- I think is self-evident here. Um, the other piece I think that's important is to remember that this is yet another place where we try to center our whiteness and we try to center good manners as like the most noble way you could be. Mm-hmm. Um, and we forget the fact that when we feel wronged, we have no problem speaking up for ourselves. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I know folks who are adamantly opposed to the protests who, you know, were felt like they were charged unfairly by their doctor and are like, get me the manager on the phone. I'm going down there. I'm, mm-hmm. I demand to speak to, you know, that's an act of protest. And so again, it's this sort of delusional history telling that we would never speak out of turn, even though we speak out of turn all the time. It doesn't require us to march in the streets with millions of people, but it does require us to sort of disrupt, you know, mm-hmm. and cause trouble. Um, the last quick thing is that a, a student actually reached out early on, um, whose parents have a really different way of seeing the world than he does. And he just said, they just keep talking about the looters and the rioters. Like, what do I, I don't want to support looting and rioting, but how do I, how do I dignify this movement to my parents and also acknowledge that it's not great, you know, that violence is happening. Um, and so I, in a typical sort of professor move, I didn't really answer his question, but I did try to say, Hey, just for you to understand the history of this thing, like this is how white people let ourselves off the hook because this is how we find our off ramp to say, if I can't support every single thing that you're doing, then I can't support you at all. Right. Or, um, I want to take your humanity seriously and your pain and your angst and your hurt, but because you threw that down, I now have the right to ignore all of your humanity. You know, that's a very white thing to do yeah. through history. And I, two, do you think it's possibly um, a self-awareness from a psychology perspective? If your greatest fear in life is uh, day by day from the time you're a child, your greatest fear is that you would get pulled over and either killed or thrown in jail for not doing anything. Or to... Um, be abused or to be whatever it may be. That's a reality for for a large segment of this country and specifically for people of color. That's their greatest fear, just to stay alive. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not our greatest fear for many of us who are white and by the color of our skin. Our greatest fear is that someone will come and take our property, will take what we so work so hard for, will take our stuff, will steal our money, will, you know, break our homes or a business that we fought for for so long. And while those are very valid fears, we don't relate to someone who says, my greatest fear is I might get shot today just because of the color of my skin. That's not even on our radar. So again, when someone is reacting out of their own greatest fear, which is to try, hey, empathize with me that I might, I struggle with staying alive and my, I'm worried for my son because he's athletic looking and wears a hoodie. <laughs> I hope that he comes home alive tonight. Um, 
we respond with, well, my greatest fear is that you break my stuff. Mm. And I think maybe some of that's going on too, because we just can't be self-aware enough to, to put ourselves into their shoes. Yeah, I I've, I think that's a great assessment. I think that they're, we've confused peace with order, mm. right? And so in this, again, I'm borrowing heavily from King here, but the peace, order can feel like peace, and it often does feel like peace to, to a lot of white folks because it feels like we know where the rules are, we trust them, they're always in our interest. If you do the, one of the elements of white culture is if you do the right thing and work hard, then you are treated well by, by policemen, by teachers, by coaches, by bankers, by employers, right? Um, that is a, a tenet of white culture that we really believe in. And our, if you listen to the story of a, of a person of color, you'll realize that that is not true, that this, the system does not respect right actions, right? And that the, the reason that someone is experiencing more interaction with the police or abuse at the hands of the police or more in-school suspensions or lower grades, it, does, it, it is not just because they have failed to meet the right standards, right? That there's an implicit bias that's been unacknowledged and it leads to explicit dismissiveness, wounding, oppression of another person's body. Um, so I think that's, that's one part of it. I think the other part is that um, one of my favorite theologians is named Walter Brueggemann, and he says compassion is the most radical act because it forces us to acknowledge that the, the sort of realities of your life are not an acceptable way for you to exist. Mm. Compassion, if you really listen to someone else's story and you really engage your compassion to your point about empathy and listen to another person, um, then hopefully that compassion will throw you into a response that says, it's not okay for humanity to be treated this way. Mm. I take your humanness seriously enough to want to act on your behalf. And so I think sometimes when we try to characterize all protesters as violent, it's another way for us to check out, um, or it's another way for us to not have to engage compassion and say, whatever you have coming to you, you have coming to you. Mm. Um, the That's last good. thing, real quick, I'll say is that this is another part of white supremacy. We individualize white actions and we collectivize black actions, yeah. right? So we, if a black person acts out or loots or something, then we say, well, that just confirms they. Mm -hmm. the they. That's how they are, right? If a white person acts out, we think, wonder what was going on with them, or maybe there's mm -hmm. mental illness, or maybe a, a white person's misdeed does not condemn the entire race, and a, a black person's misdeed often does. Mm. That's wow. You know, before we move on to the next topic here, one of the ways that you start your backyard conversations, I thought was really good. And um, you, you talk about taking inventory of your unconscious, unconscious bias, which I think is at the root of so much of all of this, mm -hmm. because nobody wants to be a racist, right? right. And then, then you go to, I am not a racist. Then you go to, I'm colorblind. Why are you talking about race? Race doesn't matter. All of that is unconscious stuff going on, right? Mm -hmm. So you say, first, take an inventory of your unconscious bias, your life patterns, and the voices you trust. A good first step is to think through the racial, ethnic, gendered, and socioeconomic status of, number one, the people you read and look to for spiritual, career, or emotional mentoring. 
Number two, the people with whom you worship or invite into your house. Number three, the people you hire, work for, or educate your kids around. Honesty with the self leads to honesty with others. Understanding who you value and trust is crucial as you identify how you determine what is normal or true. That's really good. That's really good. Do you want to expound on that? (laughs) Yeah, just that I I think part of our, I do think you're right that the term racist is like the worst thing you can be called, you know? And so in general, we have cultural racism, passive racism, active racism, and, and it's very easy to point to, again, rely on these binaries and go, oh, that's what racism looks like. Racism looks like putting a noose in someone's garage or racism looks like using the N-word or racism looks like firing someone because they're a different color. Um, And it's easy for us to point our fingers and go, whew, I am not that, right? And, And for so many people, I've heard them say things like, I'm not racist, I never even think about race right? Which kind of gets to the colorblind idea. Um, The problem is that we live in a racialized society. We live in a racial hierarchy. And so if, if I am not actively thinking about the way race and being included and being excluded influences every room I'm in, every workspace I work in, every classroom I walk into, every dinner party I attend, if I'm not actively thinking about it, then my implicit and unconscious bias will come in and have explicit damage to another person's personhood, right, or body. Um, we see this when we think about the incident at Starbucks a few years ago where the, the help staff saw two black men waiting and decided to call the police instead of allowing a person to wait for their whole party to get there before they ordered, right? I'm not sure what their implicit biases Mm. were, but maybe it was that black people can't afford snooty coffee, or maybe it was that black loiterers lead to violence, right? Or maybe it was uh, that this is a mostly white space and I'm not sure what you're doing here and it's making me uncomfortable. But in whatever way it was, their implicit biases centered and took hold of their sort of active, uh, the way that they were going to act and they were unable to um, control that. And so their implicit bias led to explicit damage to those guys. Mm. Um, and I think, I think the part of us think if, if I acknowledge I have bias, then I'm acknowledging I'm racist. And so we're disincentivized to acknowledge our bias because we don't want to be racist people, mm. right? And so it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy of I'm not racist. That means I can't ever have a racialized thought. That means I can't ever talk about race because part of white culture is that it's bad manners to even talk about race. And so then we, we're just in this cycle of I'm not biased. How dare you say I'm biased when clearly we're all biased, right? Sure. Um, and I think Ibram Kendi is really helpful in this. And this is a lot of the work of the second week um, from the conversations is really helpful in saying I'm not interested. I don't think it's productive to label someone a racist or not a racist. That's, that is largely relying on binary thinking and it's not helpful. What is helpful is to acknowledge we all have some racial bias because we grew up in this hyper-racialized society. And so let Mm -hmm. me observe it and think about it and dismantle it. That's what it takes to be anti-racist. That's good. I like that. Observe it, think about it, dismantle it instead of throwing around words. And, and even the words we're talking about in this podcast, we talk about white supremacy and white fragility and privilege, white privilege. They've become so charged politically, um, 
emotionally and you know the media loves to use it and then all of a sudden people are like well I'm not that and then it becomes people write books about it and then <laughs> you know you get into the whole woke culture and the cancel culture and everything everyone's living in a binary of you've got to believe the way I believe or else you're not a good person. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not what we're talking about here today at all. No, I mean, I, the way that I characterize like one of my sort of purposes in life is that I'm, I'm trying to give more people on ramps to this conversation, mm. right? So it's less about teaching right or wrong or going back and exposing fault or something like that. It's more about inviting people, uh, building an on-ramp for someone to enter this conversation in a way that makes sense to them, right? Mm-hmm. And the tenets of white privilege are rock solid. They exist, right? If a person will be very turned off by hearing about white privilege, then I probably won't use that term with them, you know? Um, if white fragility is a deeply embedded part of white culture, right? And it's one of the main reasons people, as soon as they get take the on-ramp onto this conversation, they get right back off because it is hard work and you feel like a jerk when you first learn about all these inequities as a white person. Yes, it is hard work. You know, and, it, and, and if we don't acknowledge this takes major stamina. Um, it's one of the things that I, that I got to do in the second week that I was going to reaffirm in the third week. Um, we talked about when, you, when you're confronted with someone else's story, if compassion, you know, if Brueggemann's idea of compassion is hard for you, then um, you have the choice to either sort of turn your back and go, that's not my problem. And that's sort of a pretty overtly racist response. Or you could shrug your shoulders and go, I know, but what can I do? and you're just sort of frozen and that's sort of a passively racist response or you can really lean in and that's the anti-racist response to go i i i take your i'm compassionate enough to take your pain seriously i see it and i want to know its roots i mean i want to know what i have to do with it and i want to know how i can fix it right but the next step especially in dealing with people new to this conversation (laughs) is to say Listen, when you decide to be a person who's going to lean in to the work of anti-racism, it, it means that you're signing up to be deeply uncomfortable. It means that you're signing up to, to get your hand slapped. Mm. It means that you're signing up to invest heavily in a thing that does not work and does not actually bring about meaningful reform. It means you're signing up for like messy, sweaty conversations that feel really inefficient or like they're just moving in circles. Yeah. That is the work. And I'm sure, Lauren, and you're with meeting people from all over the world, you've learned like you don't just sit down and like have a moment that's like everything's good, mm-hmm. everything's better. We figured out society, right? It's yeah. messy. It's, it's hard. Yeah, because everyone comes from a different opinion and no one no one likes coming to the realization that they could have been hurting people. Mm. And I think that realization like it's the defense mechanisms when people I think that's when you start getting close Mm -hmm. to someone's realizing it is when they start getting really defensive yeah because it's like if you can get past the defense mechanisms that is usually when someone changes their mind Mm -hmm. so it's just trying to get to that point I think that's brilliant. I one of the one of my mantras is that defensiveness ruins relationships. Yeah. Right. Like defensiveness kills the whole thing. And so one of my one of my sort of pointers for having tough conversations is to try to preserve the relationship by being metacognitive, mm. which is just a snooty way of like of saying acknowledge the thing that's happening around you while it's happening. Mm-hmm. Like think about the way you think while you're thinking, you know? And mm-hmm. so if a 
I've, I have seen it work so many times and it takes lots of courage, but if you're in a moment and you can feel the energy shift or you feel that defensiveness coming, or you feel someone lean back on their heels, if you'll say out loud, again, it takes a lot of courage, but say, oh man, that seems like it really struck a chord or <laughs> gosh, I can feel the tension. I hope that didn't offend you I or do. tell I, me why you're feeling frustrated. One yeah. of the things I do is try to watch body language. And when someone crosses their arms in the middle of conversation, <laughs> Many times I will call it out and say, you're crossing your arms. Why I, did I trigger something or you seem very defense? You seem like you're acting defensive now. Mm-hmm. And that will snap them out of it many times because then they won't, because they don't even realize they're doing it. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden it could potentially force them to un, undo their arms, mm-hmm. which is a, you know, a psychological way for them to literally open up again. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some tips and tr- I hate to use the word tricks, but what are some tips when engaging people and um, bringing them into these conversations? Because we don't want, I don't want any more of the Facebook arguing, mm-hmm. like I'm going to lob a bomb, you're going to lob a bomb, right. we're going to lob a bomb, and maybe, you know, I'll change your mind, said nobody ever, right? <laughs> right, yeah. So what are, some, what are some real helpful ways that, you can, that we can engage and have these conversations? Well, for, for me, and I'll say this is, this is really personal because for different people, their goal is different, right? And mm-hmm. so part of it is to just know yourself. Like, what's your, what's your purpose in having this conversation? Is it to win? If it's to win, then good luck, right. you know? Is it to... To be will, right. Right. It, will it only be successful if you change their mind and change someone's entire voting paradigm? Again, good luck if that's your goal. Um, is it to label misbehavior or hatefulness? Um, okay, that, that's one way. And I, and I will say with... This is sort of my um, asterisk, I guess, along the side. There are people who think we need to call out racist behavior as it happens label it, name it, you know, that's how we move forward. My personal approach often, and again, this is a product probably of, of my white privilege also, um, but because I think I'm an on-ramp builder and that's kind of who I want to be, I want to invite people into this conversation and I want to preserve the conversation for the next person who comes along to talk to them. Um, my goal is sometimes not to label the the misdeed or the bad statement or the bad behavior but it is to make it very clear that it's inappropriate what's just happened right but i might not put the label on it right so um so one of the one of the tenets i think you have to have as you enter these conversations is to recognize i have a history of centering whiteness so much that a person can say something racist or misogynistic it's really white maleness that we center um Someone can say something really derogatory around me, and I will find a hundred ways to make them comfortable and to forgive them and to sort of excuse Mm -hmm. away what they said and at the expense of the person that they just victimized, Mm -hmm. right? And often those people aren't there, and so it's like no harm, no foul, except for there's huge harm, a huge foul, because you just communicated to that person, I'm okay with you saying derogatory things about women or about people of color around me. Hmm. That's not a line for me. That's not okay. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just saying, I think it comes from, because I, I found a lot of this growing up, and like that was always hard for me growing up, is when I had a problem with something, and I sometimes I would say something, but then you get to the point where you're like, I don't want to say something, because I don't want to be the next person that is labeled, at least in the South, as 
the crazy liberal or the crazy whatever. And then you can't have any conversations with that person Mm -hmm. because you're immediately labeled. You're immediately labeled as the other side and therefore you're this extreme, even if you're not completely that extreme. So, Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, it just bothers I mean, I, me. So one of the one of the things I suggest is like you have to think through. Part of being anti-racist is to think through what's your responsibility for what's said and done around you, mm-hmm. and w- what are you going to allow yourself to get back in your car knowing it was said and knowing you said nothing, you mm-hmm. know? And make make that choice for yourself. Like, what are you going to live with? And if if you decide I'm not going to get back in my car knowing that someone said something terrible around me and I let it go. I'm not going to center their privilege and their comfort and their whiteness. I'm going to speak up for true things instead. If that's a choice you make, um, then it's a then it's a question of strategy. Like, mm-hmm. how are you going to do it? And so, to your earlier question, Bob, I think the some of the helpful ideas are to use a lot of active listening. So, when a person mm-hmm. says something to you, just repeat it back to them and ask them what they what they meant. And you can do that in a way that puts them on their heels and is aggressive or or is really curious. Like, mm-hmm. oh, like, what do you mean that immigrants are ruining America? Like, tell me more, right? Mm-hmm. Or like, oh, like, what civil liberties have you lost since COVID? I'm so sorry. Like, tell me about it, you know? And to, to you need to keep a straight face, but like to, to really ask a person um, what they meant by something they said, because so often these these ideas continue because we use coded language and no one ever says the thing really out loud and everyone nods knowingly and then you leave evil out in the world, right? right. And so part of it is use active listening. The other tenet I would say is don't be afraid of the awkward pause. Mm. And it's tough. But one of the things you can do to not center their comfort to center like the humanity of another people group instead is to allow an awkward pause to happen, right? And to just sit in it. Don't excuse it away. Don't jump in and say, I know you didn't mean that. Uh, You know, like allow them to mean exactly what they said Mm -hmm. and just let it sit there for a second. Um, I think that's really helpful. I think also relying on your own experience instead of statistics. I mean, statistics sometimes change people's minds, but often they don't. And so I try to go back to my own experience like, oh, I hear what you're saying. That's never been my experience with a you know, person from the Middle East mm-hmm. or, oh, like, you know what? I know, of, you know, I know, I know that school community. Like, I'd love for you to come with me to visit. I don't think it's a failing school. I think we're, we're really failing that community, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. So you can make mm-hmm. it about your experience instead of arguing with them about some stat they heard on some website. I've always thought that it was interesting to me that, you know, I've said this on the podcast before talking to many different people is, why can't we start and the conversation around what we agree on mm-hmm. instead of like polar, you know, the, the, the great example is, um, you know, well, let's talk about this. Instead of saying, do you support Black Lives Matter? Like that's, to me, for most white people, that is kind of a polar separation point, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's a lot of people who are like, of course we do. And there's other people like, no, they're evil Marxist and left wing and everything. Instead of saying, hey, let's talk about how we can treat everybody equally in this country. Let's talk about, you know, some really bad things that have been done in the name of, of, of racism. Let's talk, and I think everybody would be open to having those conversations. Nobody wants to be a racist. Nobody wants to have people mistreated. But instead, it's, you know, the, the, the litmus test is, is do, can you say Black Lives Matter? And 
you know, that, that to me is not the way you do it. You don't mm-hmm. say, do you believe in global warming or not? You say, hey, don't you want to ha- leave a better world for our kids and grandkids than us? Don't we want to have, don't we want to breathe clean air? Don't we want to have, don't we want to go jump in the lake and be able to have clean water? Of course, everybody would say yes. Don't you think we need to find common ground to have these conversations? And then as they lead to these deeper systematic things, you can go there. But I think many times we turn people off by not having those on-ramps, like you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the the binaryizing, <laughs> I like to make up words, effect of politics is just so devastating. Mm-hmm. When we've decided that a that compassion or empathy is a po- is a political move like that that makes you liberal mm-hmm. what like how did that happen right or that when you believe in laws that that's a conservative power move like what how did that happen right and so to anytime you find yourself buying into a binary or helping someone like pick a side i think you're going to lead to defensiveness and accusation and the the conversation exploding um the in my experience the the better path is to um, maybe even more specifically than trying to find the things we agree on. um, It's to, I think the bravest, one of the bravest things that white people can do right now to move the needle on racial injustice is to, to be open and sharing your own observations about the way you think and the way that, that you have bias that has been unacknowledged that can, that, gets out into the world and hurts people. So it's to humbly share your own mistakes or revelations, right? And then secondly, um, it's to not just find one safe person that you're going to share all this with. Like for a lot of white people right now, I think, who have been leaning in, who have ordered the books, who are reading and learning, and they're all on the journey. It's so exciting. They're afraid that most people will think they're turning... I don't know, liberal or extreme or something. And so they're, they're finding one friend that they'll talk to about their journey. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other brave thing you, you can do, you can be really honest about your own path and your own observations about yourself. And then you can also be really honest with all kinds of people about the things you're discovering that break your heart mm. or that grieve you That's good. or that feel really wrong, right? The discovery of what it's like to live on minimum wage, right? I mean, and some of this stuff we should know, but we don't because we live in a really polarized society. And so I think the other thing we can do, and this is providing an on-ramp, because they can just choose to sit with you in your pain or not sit with you in your pain, right? You're not asking anything of them. Um, But it's it's to be really honest, even at the country club, about how grieved you are about what you just read or what you just learned or what, you know, like the journey that you're on. I think that's one of the most invitational things we can do to other people without that's good. pushing them back. I want to save some time for your third point, which I think is really, I think, good. Well, all of them are good, but raising anti-racist kids. Now, I know this is very personal to you, and we'll let you talk about your story in that. But uh, the subtitle of that, or at least the description, is Expose, Exposing Our Littles, Normalizing Difference, and taking ownership of their education. Um, yeah, I'm really excited about this one. And I was nervous about this one. This this felt the most practically needed. Like this mm-hmm. got the most interest, I would say, from people. People who aren't even sure how they feel about anything else are very concerned about how what how they should be parenting kind of in this moment. 
Um, and so uh, one of the things I did was to put together a, you know, a resource list for little bitty picture books, like tween books, graphic novels, teen books, like all that sort of thing that you can help introduce your kids to this kind of thinking. Um, but in, in thinking about this and reading and sort of processing through, I've basically just come up with four sort of philosophies for anti-racist parenting. And the first one is um, that we're designed to be different that from your very little bitty children to your sort of, you know, 22 year olds home from college to respond openly to observations of difference, mm. to respond with curiosity to observations of difference. Now with your little kids, that means that you need to make sure that difference is reflected in the books they read and the dolls they play with and the shows mm -hmm. they watch and what they're exposed to. Otherwise, again, implicit bias, like you don't mean to do it, but you're teaching them that the only people you sort of learn from and enjoy and spend time with are people who look like them, right? Mm -hmm. So that takes work to do. Um, but the design to be different piece is also difficult because part of it is just to minimize the sort of our way is the only way ethic in your household. And mm -hmm. that's been something really hard for me to confront in my own life. It's, you know, if, if my kids hear me every time we get in the car after spending time with people, if I criticize their choices or if I sort of judge mm -hmm. what I noticed that was different, then I'm communicating an ethic of the way we do things is the only way to do things. Mm -hmm. Indifference is, is scary or bad or just inappropriate or like not good. Mm -hmm. Right. And so part of it is, is celebrating in every part of your life that difference is on purpose and that it's good. Um, the second piece is to be color aware, not colorblind. And that's simple. Just stop saying that kids are colorblind. They're not, you know, they notice, they notice difference. And when we don't talk about it, we're teaching them that to notice difference is racist. It, it is not racist to notice racial difference. It's not racist to notice anything that, that connotes difference, right? It's, it's to have eyes. It's to be curious about the world. It's to value someone else's experience. And so in a very real way, um, to, to sort of be color aware and to be interested in how do they see the world differently than you see the world, that sort of thing. Um, the third piece is to remind ourselves that raising good people is not the goal. Mm. When we go back to this sort of good people binary, like yeah. I'm good, so I can't be racist, we remove the process of understanding, you know, some of the people that you really love in your, in your kids' lives have some really jacked up views on race. We should talk about that with our kids. It's mm -hmm. tricky, but how do you teach someone to love and respect someone who has really different perspective than they do? Um, how do we teach, how do we raise kids who are not just trying to be good people, but sort of brave people, people who are responsible for what's said and done around them? And I think in our school systems, there's new bullying um, rhetoric that's being used that's really helpful in here, in this idea, because it shows you there's not just a bully and a victim. There's a bully and some people who are openly supporting the bully and sort of egging him on. There are people who are aligned with the bully but keep their mouth shut. And then there are people who are aligned with the victim but don't do anything. And then there are people who are like actively protecting the victim. And I think that's helpful in thinking about the way we engage in racist thinking rhetoric. Like you can feel bad and do nothing, but that's not helpful to anyone, mm -hmm. you know, least of all you. 
Um, and so part of part of the idea is to keep reminding yourself, I'm not just trying to raise good kids, I'm trying to raise anti-racist kids. Um, and then the fourth idea is just that this is a lifelong journey. It's like the sex talk. It's not just one talk. It's thousands of talks. You know, it's a, it's a lifelong discussion. Um, and it's this invitation. And it sounds radical if, you're, if you've been raised in a household that doesn't ever talk about race or think about race. Um, but if, if we are not actively raising anti-racist kids, then I think it's very likely that in white America, we will raise kind and generous and racist children. Mm-hmm. And that's really damning to me. What is your response, or do you have this response a lot, where people say, well, I don't want to introduce my kid to that yet. It's too much. It's I want to protect them from blah, 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 blah. Like, And obviously, people of color don't get that luxury to protect their children from racism because right. they experience it. But like, Or I don't want them to watch that because it's going to upset them. Or mm-hmm. how, what is your response to that? Or is that something that comes up often in your backyard talks? No, it, it does. It's a fear that a lot of people have. I, I think it's like any other conversation. I think it, because it's unexamined, we can, it's another way for us to just, it's like our entrance fee or our off ramp, mm-hmm. you know, like, I don't want to, I'm not going to go there because I'm not sure how to do it well. Um, but when we think about, I mean, when you talk to your kids about sex, you don't, when you don't sit down your five-year-old and explain to them all about sex trafficking and like violent porn, mm-hmm. right? That's not where you start the sex talk. Yeah. You start with like identifying and observing what you observe and mm-hmm. the differences that you see in, you know, body parts. Um, and so in the same way, I think we to talk to your children openly about race doesn't mean that you need to like get out the worst overseers behavior and the way that they beat people or mm-hmm. the, you know, the worst evils of the world that does need to be addressed, I think, at one point. But it's to talk about bias and talk about difference and talk about how some people see people differently, right? And so the I think when I think that can be sort of a an easy out um, mm-hmm. idea when people say I don't want to I don't I want to protect them. Um, it, I don't think it's about protecting. I think it's about um, having this conversation that is layered and multifaceted and begins with confronting the bias that same is better than yeah. different, right? A lot, a lot of, another way into this conversation is to sort of demystify the same myth. For a lot of us, we feel kinship with people who look like us or worship like us or are in our tax bracket, right? Or live in our neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And so we assume we're the same as all those people. One of the ways I think we can help kids understand the difference is okay and good and actually strengthening, like we don't pursue diversity because it's nice. We do it because it makes us better. Like you're, you're raising your kids to be ill equipped for the world. If you don't teach them to appreciate and learn from other people, yeah. especially yeah. people who are different than them. Right. It's, it's a, it should be a self incentivizing activity. <laughs> um, but I think if we, one of the things we've tried to do is say, Hey, we look like we're the same actually, but actually like we see the world really differently than our mm-hmm. neighbors do or our friends from church do or yeah. whatever. And so just like, we're a lot more dissimilar than we realize. You might mm-hmm. find that you're really similar to someone from North Africa, right? Yeah. Just because you look different doesn't mean that you're not actually going to find a kinship there. Yeah. Um, so I think little things like that are, are helpful too. Mm-hmm. And, and you have, a, you and your husband adopted a, a little girl. She's black and America, from America. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know you have your own kids as well. Uh, what has that been like for you? Um, it, you know, our, our adopting, um, our black child has been 
the the greatest gift of our life, I would say. It's um, it's made our family um, complete, and it has um, the way that all of our kids interact and learn from each other and grow together has been a, a huge gift for us. Um, it is a fraught history transracial adoption is, and so I um, I struggled deeply with the with that responsibility we took on when we decided um, because I refused to raise her in a white supremacist family and I refused to raise her in a society based on white supremacy that's unacknowledged. Um, she is exceptionalized by a lot of people around us because like people who believe in the colorblind sort of thinking think like, oh, but she's not, she's just like y'all though. She's just like a white child. And so one of the things we really try to um, push, and it's hard to keep your cool sometimes, is to say, like, she's not just like a white child. She is like a black child, which is how she was designed to be. And that's a beautiful thing, mm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, there are lots of terrible examples of how to do this well, I think. And there are lots of beautiful examples, too. Um, I feel, sometimes I feel um, sort of love and acceptance and knowing looks from strangers who are black or who are white. And sometimes I feel really judged and misunderstood mm -hmm. from strangers who are black or white. Um, because lots of people, lots of white folks adopt black children for all kinds of reasons. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a thing that we, um, don't tread lightly in and yet are, are hugely privileged to do so. And that's got to be amazingly um, complicated, beautiful, um, enlightening, and also um, challenging for your own kids. Um, it is. I mean, our our we we have been having anti-racist conversations with our kids since they were teeny tiny, and um and they were born in South Florida, which is a much more diverse um, area just through population and demographics mm -hmm. and proximity, um and so. Um, we have, since our kids were really young, we've been asking them questions like, so your job as a, as a white guy is to figure out who is the most vulnerable person in your class, in your school, mm. in your community, and to, to somehow try to make sure they know that you're safe for them. How can you think about communicating that you are for them and see them and, and with them, right? That you're safe. Um, after the 2016 election, there were lots of communities around us who felt terrified mm. that they were going to be deported mm -hmm. or physically assaulted or, you know, emotionally confronted, that sort of thing. And so we talked, and my kids were young then, younger, um, but we talked about, so your job now at school is to make sure that every person who doesn't look like you knows that you're glad they're there, you know, and they would that's go, great. that's so awkward. And I don't want to, you know, <laughs> I'm like, I mean, let's be creative. You could make cookies. You could make eye contact. You could smile at them. You could ask to work with them, you know, in class. Um, and you know, and it's, it's been really fruitful because they even then one of them said, that's not fair. You're making assumptions about me just because I'm a I'm a white guy, you know, and I was like, yeah, welcome to America. Like, that's what we do. We make assumptions yeah. about people. So how can you communicate that you are not 
you are not the threat that you seem to be, right? And mm-hmm. that you are that you're one of the good ones. Just like we ask, you know, folks of color to prove that they're one of the good ones. Yeah. That's so. So I, I guess there's there's work for all of us to do, Absolutely. and I think that's in parenting. It's you cannot be an anti-racist parent if you're not an anti-racist person, mm. right? Like it's got to spill out of your guts. Mm-hmm. It's got to spill out of who you are in your essence or it won't work. Yeah. Well, that's a good segue for, for winding this up. You know, I would love to see these backyard conversations, um, you know, take off. Is this something that some of this material that you want to eventually make available to people or? Yes, we are. We are in the process of thinking about how to do that responsibly right now. Okay. Um, I'm I am both sort of mindful of the unique position I can hold in a community um, with my race and gender and teaching and background. Um, and I also, again, want to mostly um, shut my mouth and move to the side and allow like black folks and and black women of color especially to sort of lead the way here um Mm -hmm. i have no business leading but if i can be an on-ramp builder or if i can be a clarifier or a like i'm a safe place to talk through this stuff with person um then i want to try to do that Mm -hmm. um and how can people find you and find your you know some of the things that you've written does it do you have a place online for people to do that yeah so i have a website called expandyourus.com it's just the three words, expandyourus.com. Um, and I write there weekly. I have not put any of this information up there yet, but I, I do nonprofits and um, businesses hire me to come in and do um, diversity training or anti-racist training um, in town quite often. And so I'm mm-hmm. always available to do that. And I can curate any of these talks to, you know, to a specific environment, um, or business. I, it's one of the greatest privileges I have to do that. I love to awesome. do that, um, in town. Yeah. And I think these, I think a lot of people are, are looking to figure out how to be a part of this conversation. They just need someone to extend a hand or share their experience so they can get on board. That's mm-hmm. great. Lauren, awesome. do you have any other closing comments? I appreciate you being here too. Oh yeah. I just love being here. I love hearing all about it. I think what you're doing is great. And I love that it's, it's a hard place to be. Cause I, I also struggle with like, I want to be helpful, but I don't want to take, acknowledge my white privilege and not take someone else's voice. Like it's not my place to say mm-hmm. anything that's for someone else, but I do want to try to be helpful to get people who won't listen to anyone possibly to listen to someone of color that would that's the person that's supposed to be speaking so it's definitely a tricky place to be so it's so encouraging to hear what you're mm-hmm. what you're doing and how you're doing it and I think it's really important thanks yeah I resonate with what you said well thank you both and uh, until next time we'll see you soon bye bye